CTO Cast. Hello, you are listening to 30th episode of CTO Cast. Today is Wednesday, February 5th of 2020. You can listen all episodes if you subscribe at ctocast.com, uh, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. I'm your host, Sasha Stavinka, together with my co host, Nick Frolov. Uh, hey, Nick. Hey, everyone. And uh, yeah, with the Gale, uh, we're today in the beautiful office of Picnic. Uh, here in Amsterdam, and with us, uh, the CTO of Picnic, Daniel uh, Hepler. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, I've been looking at your past, at your experience, and the first thing which is catching when you uh, do some due diligence on you is your basically academic background. And can you tell a couple words if you were like, what is that, right? And uh, what exactly you've been doing there? And uh, does it have any impact currently on Picnic? Uh, does it contribute to Picnic anyhow? Very good question. So, uh, so I'm Daniel, CTO of Picnic, and Picnic is an online supermarket that, with a very simple mission to make grocery shopping simple, fun, and affordable. So we started the picnic or the business in 2015, uh, first with an MVP and then we launched uh, in August 2015 publicly. So beforehand I have been uh, doing uh, some research in the academic world, both on the business side and also on the technical side. So I made a PhD in computer science uh, where I actually looked into research questions more related about reliability of a distributed large-scale software systems. So I developed basically formal methods where you can prove properties like uh, is a message that you send really uh, arriving at, uh, at the uh, recipient or is there uh, basically if you send a lot of messages is no message lost is there no kind of deadlock or live lock so those are kind of questions i've been looking into especially in the context of large systems that are distributed across multiple cloud services where you cannot rely on uh, for instance a reliable infrastructure reliable networks or reliable servers so that was uh, basically the research that i did and uh, we apply this, maybe not directly, but to some extent, the systems that we are now building are uh, systems that have basically the same challenges that I investigated in my research. Besides that, I also made an, uh, an MBA uh, because uh, I wanted to complement a bit the kind of the technical side with the, uh, with the business side, where I looked all especially in entrepreneurship and in financial engineering topics. Okay, and like uh, we have a lot of uh, among our listeners, a lot of uh, developers, engineers, and uh, a lot of them like at some point of their career thinking, all right, what should I do, you know, to grow up to CTO level? So having this uh, deep technical academic background and also on top of that MBA, what helped better to you know in your current day-to-day activities? So this is a kind of it's a very famous question that get uh, got or gets uh, pretty often asked, and it's. A little bit of kind of a difficult question to answer because you're always biased with the survival bias. So obviously I can uh, try to look back and say, well, that is maybe uh, one of the reasons. So I cannot pinpoint this to one or the answer. Um, I had basically uh, a simple principle. I always wanted to do something where I can excel and what I really loved. So I actually love technology. I love building software systems. I love building uh, systems together with others. So that's the reason why I ended up in the uh, in the tech world and especially the tech startup world and I loved to do something also in the business context that's the reason why I actually got very much attracted by e-commerce startups so that's the business that we did before with Fredover and there's also Picnic is in essence also an e-commerce and e-logistics business. So if we kind of dive into Picnic a little bit more right the, the online supermarket um, so the, the beginning Everyone said to write it's just an app. You know, what's 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 different from from anything else? It's just a uh, you know, 
Um, can you dive into the complexity? You know, it's like in your research is a large scale distributed system. The complexity of logistics is very house and can you can you kind of elaborate on the on the product and service? So actually what you see as a consumer is indeed a kind of an app where you basically order all the products that you like um, and then you get your product delivered at the next day. The business proposition that we have, you can all order all the food you love with a next day delivery model at the lowest price and with our delivery fees. So that's basically the business proposition and the business model. Um, that means, because that nobody has been able beforehand to deliver with our delivery fees, that broke up the entire uh, e-food market and uh, that moves the challenge to build up such a system not so much from the uh, demand side, so there's enough customers that love such a service, but more to the supply side. How can you make it happen? So our first challenge that we want to or that we solved is coming up with a logistical model that is efficient enough that you can deliver without delivery fees. So basically, the way as you deliver, you need to have enough um, uh, you need to have enough margin that you actually can uh, deliver without asking your customers to pay for deliveries. So this is the point one. Point two is that if you take a standard system from the market, a standard warehouse system, a standard forecasting system, a purchase system, or a standard uh, distribution system, then you always will basically end up with the same uh, type of efficiency or the capacity for the market uh, delivers. So therefore, if you are basically on the same level, then uh, you can only offer the same proposition that everybody else uh, delivers. So therefore, you have, if everybody asks for delivery fees, you also have to ask for yourself for delivery fees. Otherwise, you cannot make an efficient system. So what we saw is we come up with a new business or logistical model. We need to also actually implement this in our own systems. That means uh, we have in our own forecasting, our own uh, purchase systems, our own uh, warehouse management system, our own uh, logistical planning systems that basically implement the model and that automatically also optimize it with every day. So that with every day, basically we deliver or we um, collect enough data on both uh, the picking, on uh, the warehouse uh, shipments, on the uh, deliveries to customers, where we, which we feed back into our system where we better understand on how to optimize for the next data routes. So therefore we have this flywheel of data where every day the system becomes a bit smarter based on the delivery need that we did on the day. And uh, why you decided uh, to start in Netherlands, not uh, maybe some uh, the most obvious country to start with uh, such business, especially having some uh, strong competitors also on that market? So in essence, uh, the the country where you start uh, is basically a country uh, is, is driven by different kind of parameters. For us, um, with uh, the other co-founders of uh, Picnic, this is a Dutch-based um, Dutch-based business because. Uh, uh, the other co-founders come from here. We have a pretty good understanding of uh, the Dutch uh, logistical and the, the food market. However, also we have basically have a very strong ties to the uh, Dutch and the European uh, tech scene. So this is number one. Number two is um, if you're starting in a market that is actually a more challenging market for your business, then uh, you have a very strong story to your investors. Because basically if you can make it here, then it will work uh, everywhere else. So that is the reason why it is a bit be uh, more beneficial to start in a market that is not the easiest market because rolling out to an easy market is always uh, uh, definitely uh, uh, easier than starting with a market where you can make it very easily and then go to a harder market. And then at the same time, the capacity of the market is enough to prove 
uh, right? I mean, from yes. So we started actually in uh, 15, just in one small city, where yeah. we uh, tested if customers uh, would like such a service. So this is something where we uh, launched in 15 in Amersfoort, uh, a city which is now around uh, 50 kilometers from Amsterdam. And uh, what we learned is that the service is not only attractive for uh, the kind of the early adopters, but it is uh, attractive for in a very broad set of our customers. And what we see is that we started in the city, just 3% of all people in Amersfoort uh, actually did online shopping. What we reached now is that half of all households, so 50% of all people in Amersfoort have downloaded the app. And a large, very large part uh, of this 50% is actually ordering with Picnic on a regular basis. And that gave us enough confidence to go to the second city, third city, and by now we are in more than 100 cities. Amazing level of penetration, yeah? I think. The brick and mortar is uh, closing in Amsterdam. Uh, so, so the interesting thing is that uh, there are kind of different needs that you fulfill, um, that you need to fulfill uh, with uh, food supply or with, in general with the grocery business. So what we do is uh, we actually have a stronger customer base, which is families that can plan and uh, that want to plan also their uh, food uh, deliveries for the next days uh, or for a week. So that works pretty well. If you're more in the segment where you make uh, in a short uh, decision more in the short term, uh, where you actually after work go to a supermarket and want to decide what you want to eat on the in the evening, that is something where a classical brick and mortar supermarket will still fulfill your needs. Yeah. yeah, if we, uh, like from product perspective, I think it's more or less clear. Uh, if we dive a little bit in the uh, under the hood, like uh, how all that is possible to operate, and uh, if you can give us some bird eye view on the uh, technology environment in the company, starting from managing warehouses uh, and to up, uh, mobile applications and how data around that. So, if you can give. Yeah. So, in, in essence, Picnic, uh, we. It is, it is a very big tech stack by now, but we started with a very focused uh, proposition in the beginning where we said with all consumer systems we will build the first version because we want to actually test the demand. So therefore our consumer shopping, uh, our, our shopping app, but also the customer service systems, the payment systems we built uh, early on. And that is something we built on our own side, while for all other services, so for instance, for warehouse management, but also for the logistical planning and the, uh, the distribution app, uh, we used actually third-party systems. And at some point, uh, when we understood better what actually, um, how should we run the processes, what should we build ourselves, that were the moment. Uh, that was basically the moment where we started to insource uh, those kind of different systems. So we started to actually build after the consumer systems uh, first and warehouse management system. That we started to, to build mm -hmm. route planning. Then we built an own app uh, for our drivers. And by now we have, uh, in essence, 95% of what we are running as tech stack also built uh, ourselves. And that becomes important because. Uh, the way how you can actually improve uh, those kind of software systems, uh, there are natural limits if you work with uh, standard systems. So basically, you end up with the limit what the market uh, is able to offer. Uh, so what we said is uh, at some point we need to insource this. Uh, we need to have also su sufficient scientific power that we can actually bring it to uh, the, the edge or the corner of uh, scientific knowledge. And now we are based on all kind of AML and AI uh, methods. We are bringing it basically to the next level where we are learning from everyday's operation, from everyday's uh, kind of purchase uh, ordering. Pretty interesting. So, um, if we kind of look at this, I, I, I really like this point about the tea. To differentiate, you need to um, do something different than everyone else, right? And if you're using the same systems, you end up with uh, doing the same stuff. 
Um, and the classical uh, approach, uh, the classical question is, is, is uh, build versus buy, mm -hmm. right? And then the answer usually is, if you want to build something, then you really need to build it better than everyone else. So in this journey, is there some areas where you uh, currently, because I think you, you went all in, is there some areas where you would think uh, at some point you will step back uh, on kind of more commoditized parts and, and keep uh, the parts which are more trickier as uh, logistic rolling as inside? Certainly. So we actually we, we are very careful with the decision of build versus uh, buy. Uh, we started in the beginning uh, with making a lot of build focus on our consumer proposition and uh, we're much lighter on the logistical side. What we actually, um, when we are making a, buy, a build versus buy decision, we are looking to three angles. First one is, is there, if you're looking to our requirements, is there a solution in the market at all that can fulfill the requirements? Number two is, uh, is the potential, if you take a market solution, uh, is the potential that on the future, uh, that this solution will still fulfill our requirements and is a kind of a vendor, uh, can say evolve their systems in the way as we need to actually um, have the systems evolved over time. And the third angle is, is a software system becoming at some point a competitive advantage where we want to uh, develop and evolve uh, in our own speed. Based on this, uh, as an example, we actually made a decision in 2015. We knew that customers love um, to actually communicate with us over WhatsApp. In 2015, there was no uh, proper solution for WhatsApp available. So that means uh, we actually built our own WhatsApp solution based on the web client from, uh, from WhatsApp, which customers loved and uh, there was uh, nearly half of the communication with customers uh, ru was running over WhatsApp. Uh, WhatsApp itself actually um, in 2017 uh, all kind of clients uh, appeared uh, not really approved by WhatsApp, but WhatsApp uh, themselves in late 2018 actually or Facebook announced uh, that they uh, provide a professional WhatsApp uh, service. And we are now using the professional WhatsApp service where we actually our earlier uh, build decision, we moved into a buy decision where we said we don't need this any longer. This is commoditized service. This is something what we uh, where we don't need to maintain our own solution and we outsource this. And we have a few of more of those kind of examples where we see that there is just there are just standard solutions in the market that we don't need to build ourselves. So there's a there's a permanent back and forth of systems that we either need to build, so let's say in source, uh, because it just we are going beyond what the standard. Uh, let's say the standard level in the market, but also the other way around, where we outsource, again, uh, solutions, or better, we take a standard solution of the market uh, when uh, when we see that the market is moving faster than we can or we want to move at this point. Yeah. So if we, uh, if we go to, to the non-commoditized part, I had the pleasure to uh, hear you at the next web and on the Big Data Expo, and you were um, uh, diving into the uh, intricacies of the, the role of planning. Um, you know, uh, can you can you do a small recap on kind of the 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 the, the main differentiation points on, on, yeah. on those? So for the root planning, um, root planning basically in computer science means the traffic and salesman problem. So you plan a most efficient route uh, where you visit uh, basically all your customers. Uh, in uh, logistics, the problem becomes a a little bit more complex because you have to plan a fleet of vehicles, not only one vehicle. You have capacity constraints, you have time constraints. So the, the problem becomes a pretty advanced or elaborated uh, development salesman problem. So what we learned is in the beginning, uh, there is a lot of focus on uh, optimizing the routes, that you have a very efficient route, that you don't drive too much. 
if you are a longer time in a city, your entire dynamics changes because you are uh, realizing that you don't need to optimize any longer for the shortest route, but you need to optimize uh, for a most efficient way of delivering to your customers. And the reason for this is, if you are longer time in a city, you have a higher density, so therefore the drive time, so going from customer one to customer two, is actually a much shorter time than the time that you spend with a customer. So with a customer, you need to have a stop time, you need to find a parking spot, uh, you need to find the door of the customer, you need to ring the bell, the customer needs to come, you need to give the, uh, the groceries, uh, you need to you get products back, uh, typically empty bottles, etc. So there's all kind of stuff that happens there. So therefore, our optimization started from a logistical, a route planning problem, which we also developed ourselves, to uh, later and stop time or kind of a drop time optimization, because the drop times themselves are a much more uh, the driving factor for uh, distribution uh, efficiency and distribution effectiveness. So that is uh, one of the effect, uh, one of the uh, learnings that we had in the journey. The second one is um, all kind of route planning. Uh, all route planning systems are usually um, coming from a problem of long distance uh, route planning. So that means you need to bring something from Madrid to Rotterdam uh, to Berlin and to Warsaw. So therefore, the route planning is typically for long roads. But if you um, make inner city logistics, then in inner cities, uh, the route planning is a completely different problem. So the problem is no longer what is the kind of on a, on a highway, what is the uh, kind of the most efficient way uh, to um, to deliver your goods on a highway. But uh, you need to actually have the kind of the smart routes in the cities. What is the most efficient way that you at a daytime you can deliver a customer one, and at a later time you can deliver at, a, at another customer. And what we learned there, for instance, uh, now with the stop time optimization, is that if you deliver at a customer not on the front door but in the back door, so sometimes the, you enter the house on the back door, uh, then it's 43 seconds longer than on the front door. If you deliver actually uh, in the second floor instead of first floor, it's 27 uh, seconds longer. If you deliver at nighttime instead of daytime, uh, it is uh, 39 seconds longer. If you make uh, actually a first order delivery instead of uh, maybe the hundreds order uh, delivery to a customer, it is uh, 50 seconds, uh, 7 seconds longer. Just because the customer has uh, typically some questions on the first, uh, with the first deliveries. If a, if a driver is doing his first, uh, uh, first delivery, then he typically takes two minutes longer than if he already has worked uh, a couple of hundred hours for us. So all those kind of factors are basically uh, are getting, uh, we are considering in our uh, distribution model and the distribution planning and that uh, that we can predict uh, very accurately how long will the stop take with a customer. It's amazing how many numbers you remember, right? So it's... <laughs> it is a number game and uh, it's basically a kind of a big, it's, it's, it's a data game that we are playing here and uh, at a big number, well, if you have enough deliveries then... Uh, so basically yeah, these numbers and overall data, it's cornerstone of the company as like as you say, uh, and uh, can you give a little bit perspective starting in 2015 and to uh, 2020, how it evolved uh, from team perspective, from process perspective? I know we'll talk about that a little bit later about open source part of your uh, company. Let's maybe not touch it uh, right now there, but all about data, like how it yeah. evolved. Yeah. So we started with uh, 2015 <clears throat> only uh, with around 10 engineers and uh, the 10 engineers uh, were basically organized in one team and this one team has built the very first version, uh, so the MVP uh, of uh, our app and the backend systems for the app, and that was basically it. Uh, and at this point in time, uh, we collected no data. We had no data. We uh, just had uh, a couple of uh, data points uh, collected in spreadsheets, and that was uh, that was the starting point. At uh, late 2015, when we had a, a few more customers, we started to do both. Uh, 
analytics on the app side and we started to also do more kind of reporting and data warehousing uh, on our backend systems, especially on the fulfillment and logistics systems. And we started to do real, uh, real reporting and um, data warehousing in the course of 2016 when we started to collect all events, uh, everything that has happened in the organization. That means when did we buy products, from which supplier did we buy it, in which kind of quantity, what, which quantity did we order, which quantity did actually the supplier uh, actually deliver, uh, was he in time, if he was not in time, how much was he late, what is the impact to the order picking process in the warehouse, what is the impact to the delivery process, what is the impact to the customer rating, is it, for instance, uh, the impact on rating uh, bigger if you deliver late or if you deliver incomplete? So how can you make a decision if you are late? Is it better to wait a little bit longer and deliver a bit later to a customer? Or is it uh, more important to uh, uh, deliver on time and uh, risk that you actually substitute a product? So all those kind of factors uh, became pretty... Uh, we collected the data in, uh, twin, starting from 2016 and uh, we had enough data that we could re make really data-driven decisions based on this. And at this point in time, we collected on a database on a daily basis just a few thousand events. So this was still relatively small. But by now, we are collecting on a daily basis between three and five million events on a daily basis. So this is becoming definitely a bigger, uh, a bigger data warehouse where we can make uh, very much also decisions based on this data in real time and also ML and AI-based decisions, so all the kind of machine learning and deep learning algorithms which require a very large amount of data and also data density. Um, that is something what we could uh, do at a significant scale only from 2018 onwards, mm -hmm. when we had enough data to really make uh, the kind of fine-grained analysis uh, of, of this data. And how does currently, I don't know, data team, of course, it's not, I think it's not the single team, the guys involved everywhere looks like, is it data scientists, data engineers who is building pipelines for these data storage and data processing, etc. how it looks like? So the way how we have organized ourselves, so the team is a little bit more than 100 engineers, is organized in 50 product teams, which are uh, organized in three clusters. So there is one cluster, which are consumer-facing products, which is, for instance, our shopping app, but also payment and customer service, mm -hmm. etc. Then uh, another second cluster is um, uh, everything around operations or supply chain. So this is the purchase order management system, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also warehouse management, both in a manual and an automa uh, automation team. Uh, then it's also in a distribution planning center, the rider app, and uh, also the uh, people uh, the people management uh, part. And then the third one we call now foundational service or platform services. So this is everything what is really back-end, which is more kind of the infrastructure-related part um, for all those systems. The way how we have organized is classically uh, cross-function teams, which are headed by uh, basically two engineers or two uh, two people. Um, one is a product owner, very classical uh, Scrum-like, but also a tech lead. And uh, both are basically together building uh, the product leadership team, mm -hmm. both designed together uh, on uh, uh, product roadmap, but also on uh, the uh, delivery side of the product. So the uh, the backlog of the product is owned by the product owner. The work lock is uh, decided together, uh, tech lead and the product owner, mm -hmm. and both together basically decide how much, how do you balance uh, more technical work versus uh, feature work, and uh, the actual driving uh, of the sprint. So we are running one week and two week sprints depending on uh, which team. Uh, is typically driven by the tech lead, and he is then also responsible for the delivery of the of the respective sprint uh, goals. And how the okay, this is from uh, development product developers. How how uh, data scientists involved in yeah. the, all that, either in within teams or is dedicated team who is making sense yeah. of this data. So we have started actually uh, like most companies with a dedicated data science team with a dedicated uh, yeah. data engineering team. 
Um, everybody knows by now that this is actually an anti-pattern. You don't want to have uh, this kind of C-load single function at Teams, neither for data engineering nor for uh, data science. So what we are running now is uh, we are running uh, basically a very small uh, data science and data engineering team, which is uh, the kind of the foundational part of those products. Mm -hmm. Basically everything what is shared across all products. And then uh, we have actually uh, the data scientists for each product. We have uh, usually one or two data scientists that, that are joining the product and the same way also for data engineering. And that uh, the number of data scientists depends a bit on uh, which kind of product we are using. As an example, um, uh, we have now, uh, we had now uh, quite a few bigger projects uh, for our payment systems in Germany. We started with a payment option which is called direct debit, mm -hmm. which means in practical terms that a customer gives a mandate uh, that they can deduct money, but we deliver first the product to the customer and then uh, we try to deduct the money from uh, the customer's bank account uh, and we hope that we see the money. So now uh, you realize, so we started with the service in Germany uh, because our assumption was that uh, Germans are, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that, that will work pretty fine here. Well, uh, I myself also German, so I thought, well, uh, that should work. Uh, what we realized is that uh, there is definitely a pretty, a pretty wide variety of uh, customers. So if somebody orders actually uh, milk, cucumbers and uh, bananas at five o'clock in the afternoon, then uh, this is a order where you can, uh, with close to 100%, you will see your money. If you have an order that comes at uh, two o'clock in the morning in uh, with a lot of booze and all kind of other stuff, then uh, the likelihood is less than 50% that you will see the money. And all those kind of uh, kind of analysis uh, we have done from the data science and data engineering side to uh, identify which kind of um, which kind of payment option do you can you deliver to a customer. So, for instance, uh, in, uh, in Dutch terms, it would be you have uh, in Netherlands uh, ideal, so you have an upfront payment and then we deliver. That is something what we can uh, offer to all customers. If you have a post-delivery payment method or deduction method or cash collection method, that is something what you only want to deliver offer to your customers, uh, to your loyal customers, uh, customers that have a specific payment track record. So it sounds like scoring system in uh, credit and loan organizations, right? So you're given score. <laughs> How likely in this area of Germany this time of the day? <laughs> so scoring systems is, is basically an implementation method, uh, which is in, in, uh, in the banking world pretty uh, pretty common. But what we are doing here is, is, is pretty common fintech type yeah, of exactly. uh, analysis of, uh, of the payment flows and what is the likelihood that actual payments happens in the way how you want to see them. Yeah. Uh, uh, do you use uh, such approach also to operations of the company itself, like data-driven? Yeah, it's core of your business, like logistics, payments, collecting. But do you apply that also, I don't know, like to engineering or to guys who is working in the warehouse, like to, to measure how efficient they are, uh, what kind of KPIs you, I don't yeah. know, maybe measuring? We, um, we actually apply it across the entire organization for, uh, for all processes. The real question that we ask ourselves regularly is uh, how do we want and how should we use this data? <laughs> uh, what we don't want is we don't want to actually uh, push people uh, to work harder or to work uh, in, in a very specific way. So what we are trying to do is we are making a lot of uh, process analysis where we uh, document the process and we try uh, we identify how can we measure for each process step the efficiency of the, uh, of the process steps and uh, we are using this in our um, input or this kind of analysis in order to improve the process. Let me give you an example. Yeah. In a warehouse, you are uh, you are actually uh, going uh, um, through the warehouse in a specific in a specific form. You're going uh, typically one aisle up and the other aisle you go down and then you go again an aisle up. 
what happens is that if you have if you if you pick products, uh, the most efficient way is that you uh, pick products without uh, walking too much between the products. And if you uh, can leave this kind of uh, uh, this kind of pick round at an early stage, then you are also a bit more efficient. So therefore, we are optimizing the picking order. So that means which products do we pick in which order for which customer in a way that it is uh, most efficient for uh, from a picking productivity angle, but also for the actual order picker. We call them shoppers. Um, it is just nicer if he doesn't need to walk so far, if he is a bit closer to the picking location, if he can pick multiple products uh, from the same shelf location uh, together. So this is a kind of a multidimensional picking or optimization problem where you are trying to optimize what is the most efficient way that you can pick with the least kind of tasks uh, the most products. Uh, and uh, probably last question in that area about the uh, basically robots. For me, it sounds like uh, that you even more efficient way to do that is fully automated warehouse with robots, uh, even without involving and shoppers who can can also be robots, right? Still require same process, but <laughs> so 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 uh, the interesting part is. Um, we are. Uh, we have announced now a few months back that we uh, that we wanted that we will build a uh, fully robotized automated warehouse. Okay. What um, what this means in our context is that we would like actually to make um, this is called augmented intelligence. So basically, we want to run. Uh, we want to automate processes in the warehouses that are actually very heavy mm-hmm. and uh, that are uh, also very uh, cumbersome for for shoppers. So we are looking actually for a new warehouse setup where the same amount of shoppers. So these are our warehouse personnel. Uh, the same amount of people can work there, but uh, that can actually process two times, three times, five times more uh, orders. So that is basically the goal. And uh, if you can uh, basically uh, process more orders for more customers, that's nice for the shoppers because you can actually make more customers happy, but it's also uh, efficient for, for the business itself. And this is, especially from a technical angle, it is a very nice way uh, to think about how can you optimize a process where humans do the actual more creative tasks and everything what is more the heavy lifting or what is uh, just cumbersome work, how can you automate this with robots but also with convertibles and all kind of other automations. Let me give you a very simple example. Yeah. So we had in the beginning, and this is pre-robots, uh, we had a simple task in the warehouse where you had to put uh, plastic bags in, uh, in the totes. So that is, uh, that is something which uh, we did in a very manual way in the beginning, but that is not super exciting. So when neither the uh, people that did the work nor uh, uh, liked it very much, nor uh, actually the task was very efficient. So what we said is, uh, let's uh, together design a machine that is doing this task, and uh, everybody around it uh, is just doing the task that is mm-hmm. much more interesting, because uh, looking for the products is uh, more interesting than putting uh, just a, a bag into a, a tote. Yeah, uh, that, uh, and this is one of the kind of automations that we have been do- doing here, in the same way we do also dispatch loading and uh, frame loading uh, type of automations. Okay. Um, following up on the scoring and dashboards and analysis, um, tell us a little bit more about the picnic coin. Yes. So um, we talked until now uh, very much about uh, what we call uh, supply chain op- or operations in the business. Uh, on the engineering side, um, we have also thought about how can we use actually the data that we have available in our systems. So we're uh, using as uh, we're using Java and Python as our implementation language. Uh, we're using a kind of classical GitHub uh, and uh, pull request review flow, and uh, we make automatic building over Travis CI. So the really interesting part is if you have such a CI/CD pipeline, if you look to uh, the way. Uh, the time to market is basically driven on how fast can you review your code. And we saw 
one uh, we realized one interesting dynamics said if you have product teams then everybody in the product team is very much motivated to uh, push their code forward so that means you actually try to uh, you build new features but also you review from your colleagues in your product team uh, all the code that they produce what is not what has been not working so well is that um, you actually if you ask somebody from another product team to review your code then there was no strong incentive to actually prioritize this kind of review because everybody was uh, very much pushing their own products forward so we thought how can we actually build up an incentive system that you uh, that everybody uh, would also be motivated to um, uh, to review uh, code from other product teams so um, we thought that we can take maybe an analogy from uh, from file sharing networks where you also think a bit about that in the same way as you take from a network, you should also give back to the network. So that means whoever else uh, is reviewing. So when somebody when somebody from another product team is reviewing uh, um, something in your code base, then you should also give back by reviewing uh, with the other in the code base of the other team. A pull request and we introduce basically a dashboard that is measuring uh, the efficiency of the process so that means whenever somebody has reviewed something on your side you should also uh, um, uh, you should review somebody else's code and if you even review more from other uh, people's code base or engineers code base then you basically rank higher in this uh, dashboard so this was the starting point and then we made uh, this visible over dashboard and that was already a nice gamification but we thought it could maybe go even a step further we should incentivize actually uh, this collaborative way of working in a way that if somebody is very much contributing to others uh, code bases then you should uh, stop collecting coins so we started actually to give out coins because it's the picnic coin uh, uh, whenever you have been for a longer time uh, part of uh, oh, more reviewed of us code bases than your own code base and that is obviously a kind of a gamification feature but this has helped us to build a very organic and a very uh, self-steering way for the teams that an entire team of 100 engineers organized in 15 product teams can still work as in an efficient way autonomously in the product itself but still as a kind of a big uh, group together towards the common goal of building the platform of a uh, sustainable e-commerce uh, delivery system and as far as i know you even open source this uh, solution this dashboard uh, at least it is on on the github of your GitHub. correct it's so we have uh, we have actually published uh, this idea around two years ago uh, and we have talked uh, at uh, two or three uh, conferences about it and uh, many many people have reached out to us uh, to ask uh, can we get a bit more information can we actually can you open source this how can we apply this and at a point where we had uh, more than 100 requests coming in from different kind of engineering teams from all, all around Europe we thought well we should make this open source um, and then we looked to the code and the code was actually uh, just written in, in, in a few days in, in a state where we didn't feel so comfortable to immediately open source it so um, we had to put a little bit of work in it took us initially um, took us a bit longer than we initially expected but um, now a month ago we open sourced this and uh, quite a few people have already downloaded it we're looking still for more contributions from the community, but I'm pretty optimistic that this will also come in the coming uh, So if weeks. somebody from our listeners is interested, they can go to your GitHub, right? And even yes. contribute there, right? So if you go to the site picnic.tech, uh, then you basically find an overview of all the open source projects that we have done. And uh, one of the projects is our code review uh, dashboard. Uh, but as you mentioned, that's not only product. I, I think it's close to a dozen, maybe, already yeah. products you... 
42 uh, repositories currently public. But maybe, I don't know, all of them already like uh, open source products. Uh, but anyway, I see this is a big focus on uh, OSS, on open source software and making a lot of things what you're doing internally open source. Can you tell about that? Like, why is it a part of the, of the culture? Is it sustainable to have so much contribution to open source? So in essence, what we open source is everything uh, is, is all code that we have developed ourselves in-house. Uh, and at some point we thought, well, is this something what actually more people, more engineers uh, would like? Is this something what we could give back to, to the community? We ourselves uh, have also taken from the community. community. So we're using quite a bit of open source. So we saw there is an obligation to give back to the community. and. Uh, that was po the point where in uh, somewhere late 16, early 17, we started to open source uh, our first, uh, our first uh, libraries and first, uh, first components. And that basically became a kind of a uh, dynamics by itself. What we are now doing, uh, that is uh, kind of new for 2020, for the road mapping um, of, of 2020, we started the first time now to look up from before we developed this uh, already into what could be open source. So which kind of developments are relevant not only for Picnic, but maybe for the entire engineering community. And then we asked the respective engineering teams to develop in a way that we can even easier uh, open source it. And that makes it also much, much easier to uh, actually open source in a more planned way uh, going forward. So the real kind of uh, the big, uh, kind of the big goal at some point is, is that we uh, develop at least a part of the system with open source as default. Because the real part, if you're really kind of a data-driven, data-first uh, and an engineering-driven organization, then what you actually develop is not any longer so much your IP, it's more the, the data is the IP and not any longer the software systems. So we could, uh, so we, we would be even open to think about uh, a much more drastic approach in this direction, but this is something what um, what is currently internally discussed and we, we will see how far we come with this. Yeah. Do you see any overhead in this? I mean, um, do you support repositories? Uh, you know, I know that, for example, in Facebook there was a the whole book written about how to, you know, if someone go with a with a uh, uh, public repository, then there is all these things which need to be in check. And was there any moment where you uh, found out that you shared something you didn't want to share? So, um, um, so th these are basically two questions. Uh, to start with, the first question: if there's some overhead. Um, what we learned is if you make open source an afterthought, so that means at some point you realize that uh, something is interesting for the community but you want to open source it, then most likely it is a pretty big effort to bring it in a state that you can open source it because there's too much dependencies to your internal stuff. Uh, which means for us uh, thinking upfront what would make sense to open source uh, is it makes the overhead already much smaller. This is one thing. It is never completely for free, so that means uh, you make a little bit of commitment that uh, it takes a bit more effort to open source something. Um, we have not open sourced, at least we are not aware, uh, open sourced something that we shouldn't have uh, open sourced, but we are certainly, um, we are mindful uh, that uh, there is stuff that uh, is is much more neutral uh, with respect to uh, the business model that we do and uh, something that is more central to, uh, to the IP that we have built there. And that is obviously something what we, uh, what in a more staged way we will open source. But I'm pretty relaxed with respect to open sourcing. We are taking something from the community. Uh, we, are, we are building basically of all, on top of open source. So therefore, uh, it is also an obligation for us to give back to some, uh, to some extent. Uh, is it only about software or uh, like, one of the trends which we also see on the in the community it's making open source some data sets is yeah. it something you're thinking about so we have um, 
that obviously the open source idea is something which is now uh, uh, implemented for in the last 30 years in a pretty efficient way and over the last 20 years we see uh, uh, quite a few business models that uh, where companies have been built around the open source idea in, in a very successful way and uh, probably companies like Red Hat and others are very very uh, very good examples for this. So what we what we see and what we want to do is actually the open sourcing to go beyond uh, our software stack. So the first thing what we did uh, a couple of a couple of months back is that we actually open sourced our entire recruitment playbook. So that means the way how we open, let's say, how candidates are assessed, uh, the way how we how we look to candidates, how we assess candidates in the different kind of stages, the way how uh, we organize on-site, the way how we organize the entire recruitment process, how we handle uh, the process. This is something what we both documented, but also the tooling around it. We have open sourced and we have gotten uh, um, very, very positive feedback uh, from the entire tech community around uh, this open sourcing project. The second thing what you're asking is um, about open sourcing of uh, data sets. This is something what we have done for uh, for two datatons already, where we actually uh, have participated in uh, this uh, kind of hackathons uh, for data scientists um, and have uh, shared data sets and where we have also given, uh, given actually then a nice challenge around this data set. So what we have to give you maybe a bit more concrete example, so we have taken a data set of uh, a couple of deliveries so this was around uh, a few hundred thousand deliveries in a few cities. And we asked the question, how big is the impact of weather uh, to the deliveries? So uh, that is a kind of an analysis that we did also internally. And we knew a bit uh, what can you get out, what can you not get out. But this is nice if you can together with the community see what is the impact of weather to uh, your delivery times, but also to, also to, uh, to safety. So and that is something what we uh, what we see more and more is that also safety aspects. If you have thousand uh, thousand cars on the street, if you drive every day, hundred thousand kilometers, that safety is something which is becoming a real number game. Uh, so you need to be very mindful on how you organize your deliveries in a safe way. So therefore, we have also built an app we call this the Driver Coach, which is an app that uh, actually. Uh, uh, gives the drivers feedback on uh, how safe they have been dri driving after the ride. But now, uh, the latest feature that we have rolled out now, it gives upfront a notification if a driver is approaching a dangerous uh, situation. So that means if you're going to uh, in a turn and you're driving too fast, then uh, you get actually, uh, with the driver coach, gives you a notification that you're driving too fast, you should brake. And that uh, that uh, that is one of the components where we can make uh, all the deliveries uh, safer for both the drivers, but also uh, for everybody uh, else on the street. Reminds me of the movie uh, Fifth Element with Bruce Willis, where the, his car was giving him fines for speeding. <laughs> yes, so uh, we don't give fines, but actually our our intention is um, is, is that driving safe or safe safe uh, safety safety is a good business. So being safe is uh, is, is one of the real uh, let's say important uh, drivers of our business. And uh, we want to help our drivers to become uh, basically the safest drivers that you that you can have in e-commerce. And uh, this is especially because we have a large pool of relatively young drivers. Um, it's just a priority for, for us to help them to grow even faster to become safe drivers. You also mentioned that you recently open-sourced your recruitment experience, your recruitment book. Uh, frankly speaking, I already shared that with our HR department, uh, that as soon as it became uh, public. Can you tell a little bit about this experience, uh, how it's different from you probably have seen in, uh, in the past, uh, why it's so innovative? Yeah, so um, I think the first thing is what, what most companies are doing is uh, 
you have a kind of a recruitment page uh, or talent page or however you call it and then uh, you document a bit uh, what are the steps that you're going through what candidates want to know actually what um, what are the people behind the scene who is looking to my code what can i expect from this and what we uh, what we are doing is i know we know that um, candidates spend quite a bit of time in uh, doing uh, the kind of the assessment projects and uh, all kind of other evaluations that are happening during the process so uh, it means also there's an obligation from our side that we give something to the candidate as feedback so we have documented in detail on not only how we assess it but also um, all the feedbacks on how you can improve further so if a candidate applies uh, in picnic and even if he is not on the level or not if he's not uh, at the current at the level where he can join the team. We're giving him basically a, a handbook, how he can evolve further, what he should do to uh, get to the level that he can uh, basically join the team. And that is something what candidates really, really like. And that is something where we also see from feedback from candidates that this is something what is helpful for them. And we have a few examples also in the team where somebody applied a few years back, uh, took this kind of feedback, uh, worked on, uh, on uh, either kind of hard skills or soft skills, and then uh, came back and uh, made it kind of a second round and then uh, he was ready for the team. Check, check the boxes, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think what I'm pretty impressed is how authentic and subtle, you know, your, your process was today. For users five years as a CTO, um, what were the kind of major milestones in, in, in terms of, you know, what been the, the points where it really changed the way you view things or the way you operate? So when we started in, in, in uh, five years back, it was just a team of a total 30 people, 10 engineers. Running a 10 engineering team means uh, you spend 80% of your time writing code. There's not much. Uh, everybody knows roughly what needs to be done. It's the first version. This is something which is there's very little steering needed, very little organization needed. So that is a completely different phase than if you have 100 engineers, if you run uh, 15 different product teams, uh, where you have also a significant amount of operations that need to happen. So on the one hand, obviously we were running uh, through different kind of phases. So there was the MVP phase, there was the phase where we had the first public launch, where we needed to balance uh, all the demand from customers. So what we learned is uh, when we launched is that we, we had four cars and we thought, well, maybe somebody uh, would like such a service, so let's just launch. But what we saw is that uh, over the first uh, few hours uh, when we launched, uh, a few thousand customers uh, subscribed to our service. So that mean, meant basically with four cars you can't deliver to this kind of large set of customers. So we needed to quickly come up with a feature or kind of a, a methodology that, um, that we can balance supply and demand, uh, which we now call uh, our waiting list. So that means customers cannot immediately enter the store, but actually we step-by-step uh, -step let uh, customers uh, in, in the store, and basically everybody goes uh, through, uh, through the cycle. So what we learned as a second step is, um, that is a relatively efficient method, but if you want customers to keep uh, motivated, during the cycle, you need to actually both engage with them communication-wise, but also you need to give them a little bit of goodies along the way. So this is something what we call the Wachtversachter, which is a pretty uh, pretty famous feature now, uh, what everybody likes uh, before they actually can enter the store. But if you're looking to the more uh, technical milestones, the first milestone was obviously the MVP, then the public launch, then scaling from one city, one fulfillment center to one fulfillment center, multiple cities, because the planning problem becomes uh, much more complex. Then we move to multiple fulfillment centers in many cities. And then the last stage was basically the launch in a new country. 
and which meant also technically we went from a very basic Amazon deployment with Elastic Beanstalk and a very basic type of uh, manual configuration of the servers to a setup where we have now everything terraformed, we are using Kubernetes, we are using Docker. So basically the infrastructure as code is on the level where with very little effort you can uh, roll out in a new country. Uh, we have also started with, um, with a pretty monolithic architecture in the beginning, which was more uh, kind of more necessity in the beginning to move fast. And we learned that this is a very efficient way also to iterate uh, quickly in the beginning because you just don't know what are, what are your APIs, what are your requirements. So therefore, keep everything together. Don't think too much about uh, a kind of a complex uh, microservice architecture. We are now in the stage where uh, with hardware engineers, you need a little bit more organized way where you every every product team has a couple of microservices. We have a kind of a platform service, which is still a monolith, but uh, at least 50% of the code base is now is microservice organized. And these are basically the services where we believe that this functionality we will also need in a three, six, nine, 12 months time. And therefore we can basically stick to, to the API. And the development processes in the beginning, it was basically one team, uh, one, one Scrum type of process, and now we have a Scrum and Kanban, uh, basically a mix of both across the teams. And we have a very light kind of alignment between uh, the product teams. So we have, we have actually, we are shying a bit away from uh, this kind of uh, agile at scale methods like SAFE, or uh, which are usually adding an overhead which is uh, which is not easy to get right at the beginning so we are trying to push this uh, as far as possible away until we really need uh, this kind of agile at scale uh, type of uh, methods yeah thank you very much daniel uh, it was uh, really impressive uh, 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 thank you very much uh, dear listeners so we love your comments please go to ctocast.com or itunes and leave your feedback and don't forget to subscribe ctocast <laughs>